fire happens. And in California and Oregon and Washington states, fire happens a lot. But fire isn't always bad, nor is it always harmful. Fire can even save lives. But what to make of the fires each year? Are the popular articles correct that thinning will have no impact? If management won't help, then what to do? Is the only answer to alter the climate and climate change? If so, how do you stop the winds? The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 107. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello, folks. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. My cookbook, Cooking for Comfort, is out and is available on Amazon. You can also order it from my blog page, where you can also read the introduction and see readers' photos of dishes they've prepared. Find that information at culinarylibertarian.com slash cookingforcomfort. October is here, and that means fall baking. Stock up on your favorite fall spices. One of my favorites is cardamom at Savory Spice. Enter culinarylibertarian.com slash savory spice into your browser to shop their extensive selection of spices, spice mixes, and rubs, and learn about their gifts. culinarylibertarian.com slash savory spice. My guest today is Daniel Lavelle. Daniel is Associate Professor of Practice and State Fire Specialist for Oregon State University. Daniel earned his master's degree from Oregon State in Forestry and Forestry Science and his Ph.D. in Landscape, Community, and Disturbance Ecology from the University of Montana. Daniel has been active as a forester and firefighter since 1973, serving at times as a chief and as an EMT. His expertise in wildfires is why I've invited Daniel on today. Daniel, thank you for joining me today on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Good morning, Dan. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, it's my pleasure. I've invited you on to talk wildfires, not the song, but the things that we here in the Pacific Northwest, California, Washington, and more, but particularly those three states seem every year to have to deal with. So before we get into that part, uh, if you would, give me a bit of your background. Well, currently, I'm an associate professor of practice at Oregon State University College of Forestry. I work within the Forestry Natural Resources Extension of the College of Forestry as the state fire specialist. I started with fire, forestry, natural resources, when I uh, was released from the service in 1973 and have worked in those fields collectively ever since. And I was uh, on wildland fire from 1978, every fire season to 2012. And I was in different 
position, different capacities from a basic firefighter to being in charge of the fires as an operations section chief, incident commander, um, worked on incident management teams from Florida to Alaska during uh, about a 15-year period and served on teams for floods, hurricanes, as well as fire. And at the same time, uh, was a forester, a silviculturist, and ecologist concurrently. And in 2010, I retired and formed a consulting company. And in 2014, I applied for and received a job with Oregon State University and have been working with them ever since, initially as a forest agent in Klamath and Lake County. And then I just got the uh, state specialist job in uh, just last year. So, and that's where I'm, where I am now. I have a bachelor's degree uh, from Oregon State in forestry and a master's degree from Oregon State in forest science and a PhD from the University of Montana in landscape community disturbance ecology. Well, that is an impressive CV. I suppose the first thing to get into about fire is the fire. To most of us, we see flames and think, hey, that's fire. Are there kinds or types of fires in a forest? Is there, do they have names? Well, most definitely. Um, and fire is not, you know, initially we portrayed fire as an evil entity to be fought and subdued and snuffed out. And, but personally, I've had fire almost take my life many, many times, but fire has also saved my life many, many times. Uh, and there are beneficial and detrimental sides to fire, both. And it's purely a chemical equation and a force of nature. That's all fire is. So it has different faces of being detrimental and of being beneficial. So there are Technically speaking, there are different levels of fire intensity that burns over in a wildland environment, and there are different levels of fire severity that burn over in a wildland fire. Um, high severity, high intensity, uh, those are how fires are qualitatively labeled. Uh, we know that fire behavior can take on many, many forms, you know, low intensity, high intensity. Uh, it burns certain ways under certain vegetation types, under certain climatic conditions, under certain topographic conditions. Weather, topography, and fuel drive how fire behaves. And we have a, a, a category for different fuel models and different fuel types and uh, different fuel structures, composition. Uh, and that's been studied extensively for decades. 
You mentioned a category, and it never even occurred to me that that would be the case. So having lived in Florida for a long time and well familiar with the categorization of hurricanes, is do they categorize fires? Do they, is, there, is there a Cat 5 fire? Well, there, there is. Um, and I noticed your 850 area code, which is Florida, and I'm reminded of uh, 1998, I don't know if you were in Florida at the time, but it was Florida's firestorm year. And I spent probably a m- month and a half on incident management teams in Florida at the time um, trying to manage those fires. But And so I've, I've belt, dealt with hurricanes uh, in the service. I've gone through hurricanes. And, and yes, there is a lot of similarity between categorizing levels, sizes, complexity of fire like hurricanes. Uh, and honestly, there's a lot of similarity of categorizing intensity, size, and complexity and severity of fire uh, that's kind of similar to this pandemic we're going through as well. Ways to deal with it different resources to handle it, depending on the size and complexity. You know, we have type one fires that are handled by type one management teams that are uh, more extensively um, uh, composed of higher higher levels of expertise that are uh, have resources to deal with, with that level of complexity of fire. And we have, uh, all the way down to a type five fire that's really small. It's uh, like a lightning strike or an initial attack can be handled by one or two people. And overall, the, the organizational model for each type of fire is based on the incident command system that was developed in California following a big fire year in the 70s. And this incident command system is structured to expand and contract to allow for modification, adjusting, and adapting to different size and complexities of these fire types. So it's um, it's an organization that was built on lessons learned and what works under these extreme um, chaotic conditions, and it's time-tested and time-proven. Hmm. So the significant difference is that where a Category 5 hurricane is is the biggest one, a Category 5 fire is the smallest one. Smallest one. That's, well, or a Type 5 fire. Yes, that, that's, that's true. But um, like Hurricane Rita in, in uh, Texas, when that happened, I was on uh, a Type 1 incident management team. Um, I'm sorry, it was a type two Texas incident management team that was in charge of the hurricane response at that time. And it was a seamless organizational shift to go from a management incident management team in charge of a fire to an incident management team in charge of a hurricane. You still had logistics to deal with, you had plans, you had administrative uh, aspects to deal with, and you had uh, operational aspects to deal with. The incident command system, as uh, organized, 
works for any type of incident. In fact, I've been with it for so long since the 70s. I've I've managed uh, family reunions under the incident command system, and it works really well. <laughs> that's that's. I'm glad that's kind of funny. <laughs> I have seen on various social media pages and whatnot uh, responses to fires posted from probably well-meaning folks or not, uh, articles from the BBC and the New York Times, both with content about fire, which seems, well, frankly, just flat wrong. Uh, in Boy Scouts, we learn that a fire needs fuel, heat, and oxygen. Manage the fire by managing those elements. There was a suggestion that thinning and managing forests by removing dead trees would have no impact on fire prevention and the stumps of thinned trees would act as fuel. Now, that at least makes sense, but to the critical thinker, the board feet of a tree and the board feet of a stump are not equal. So can you make some sense out of any of this? So Dan, critically thinking this through, the science, the body of research indicates that different types, sizes, aggregations of fuel burn differently depending on climatic conditions, especially wind temperature and humidity and the topographic influence it's under. You change wind temperature and humidity you change topography, you change fuels contents, you will have a different fire behavior, everything else being equal. You moder we can't, we don't have much control on moderating weather. We don't have much control on moderating the topography, but we can control and moderate the amount, type, quality, size, and distribution of fuel. If we do that, we have the opportunity to modify fire behavior. So in other words, fuel is different classes and sizes and types, distributions and loadings, amounts. I don't care if it's a standing tree, if it's a stump, if it's a bunch of sticks, if it's 40 tons per acre of accumulated jack strawed slash. You put wind temperature and humidity the same and topography the same, everything else being equal, you alter the amount, size, content, distribution of that fuel loading, you're going to get a different fire behavior result. So the claim in the article that removing that removing fuel that seems like it's reading wrong or making perhaps they're making sweeping generalizations about fire in general without accounting for all of these other factors correct it yeah it's way way over generalized and managing fires and to really mitigate the risk of fire to values at risk. If you really want to change fire behavior, um, 
managing the fuel is the way to go. The the article you cite, but it's tremendously nuanced. It's tremendously complicated, but is worked out in the body of science, and it's very predictable and manageable, such as you have a fuel model for grass, and grass behaves with fire in a predictable manner. That's the fuel model for grass. In other words, it'll have an energy release component, which is the heat produced by fire in grass. It'll move this fast under certain conditions. And it the, the behavior of a fire in a grass fuel model is predictable. It's a heck of a lot more different than a fuel model of mature tree, a mature forest, or a young forest, or shrubs, or there's 40 fuel models that we have now. Each fuel model behaves differently and is, a, is complex on its own and, and needs to be modeled and managed way differently. And it, just to say that we have a stump and a standing dead tree uh, is, um, you know, that's it's just not addressing it. So it sounds like if we're going to use medical terminology, say, you know, to diagnose a fire, just calling fire fire without diagnosing the the, the kind seems, well, <laughs> at least foolish, perhaps irresponsible. You know, it's like the oncologist saying we have cancer. Well, what kind? Well, I don't know. It's cancer. So, and where is it? And how extensive is it? And what are the signs and symptoms? And to make a proper diagnosis of cancer is is a heck of a lot more complex than just looking at a person and say, "Oh, I think you have cancer." You know, deal with it. Um, right. It's it's very similar to that. Yes, but that's what the science is for. The science of fire behavior started way back in the early 70s uh, formally, but way back in 1911, after the big 1910 burn of Montana and Idaho, that's when fire behavior empirical models were developed by just firefighters looking at the all of the complexities of fire behavior in these different fuel types following the 1910 burn. Well, they they empirically dealt with that for for decades and it wasn't until the 50s when the science started to be developed but it was really developed in the 70s and published in the 70s but it took a civil engineer an aeronautics engineer from world war ii to to be hired following a high intense fire season in california in the 70s to develop the intricacies and the science behind fire behavior. So that's done. And and that's what modern fire behavior analysts and fire managers are using to this day because it was such an enormous task to do, but it is a very accurate result. And that's what we need to rely on. We can't just say, oh, you know, I'm looking at the TV news and I'm seeing this 300-foot flame length, well, all fires behave that way, don't they? Well, no, of course not. 
And it's uh, to really manage. That's why, that's why on the other side, fires can be very beneficial as well. So given everything we've just talked about, the beneficial part of fire, you can prescribe burn under suitable, appropriate conditions of wind, temperature, humidity, and topography. So in other words, when humidity is higher and wind is lower, temperature is lower, and under um, prescriptive conditions, you can do a prescribed burn that would be beneficial and remove some of the debris and litter and actually benefit the ecosystem. So the two sides of fire, you can't just look back and say, oh, fire is evil and it's not, or fire behaves this way under every condition it doesn't. And that, that doesn't give us the option of really utilizing fire for our benefit as well as managing to reduce the detriment. You know, I'm happy you brought up prescribed burns. Uh, in the paper, forest harvests can increase subsequent forest fire severity. There is a statement that reads, quote, given the damages in both dollars and acreage, it would seem to be in the best interest of timber companies to implement thinning treatments and or prescribed burning programs rather than clear cutting, end quote. Now, that seems rather commonsensical. Are prescribed burns happening in Oregon enough to at least reduce risk? And then how is risk assessed? So prescribed burns are happening um, on different lands, state, federal, private, across the state. Uh, It's a common belief that we can and should increase the scope and scale of prescribed burning, and we're working on that. We have a ways to go with that yet, but it prescribed burning can be a very good tool. The caveat is you have to be careful. You have to prepare. In other words, uh, I don't care if it's private or public or whatever ownership or management of land, if there are 40 tons of harvest slash per acre on a given tract, you probably wouldn't want to prescribe burn that or you, because it would burn too hot, too fast. Uh, it would be way out of the bounds of a safe prescriptive prescribed burn. So you need to prepare. You, need, you can't just say, well, if this stand or this acreage of, of forest was harvested, let's go burn it. You know, you, you can't just do that. There has to be a plan. There has to be expertise. There has to be uh, uh, equipment supporting it. And you have to do it professionally. Whether you're a private landowner, whether you're a public land manager, you have to, then you have to be careful of liability. Then you have to be careful. So all, you need to line up a lot to be able to prescribe burn in a beneficial manner. Um, and you, ha- you have to prepare the site more often than not. We've suppressed fires very, very effectively 
for almost 100 years, maybe over 100 years, we've put out 98% of every fire start. Ironically, up and down the West Coast, all of these fires this year are part of the 2% that got away. So we're very good at that. But the flip side is after stopping disturbance in these forested or non-forested vegetation types, biomass has built up to high levels that put a fire in there without preparing it, and it'll it'll do more harm than good. I mean, it'll it it will not be an appropriate beneficial burn at that time. Right, and. A buildup of biomass sounds like a politician's question. So we're going to, I, th- I think we've addressed at least that part sufficiently. We'll leave the politics to the politicians. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, most people who see a fire, and that's what I've mentioned this, they see it and they say, oh, man, we need to put that out. I read a master's thesis which suggested that in some cases, the immediate and long-term costs of letting a fire burn are lower, meaning better, than putting it out, than the cost of putting it out. If there's no risk to property or human life, is that a reasonable option? Yes, it is. Um, for about six or seven years, when I was uh, working on, on fire management, I was part of uh, an incident management team called, at that time, a fire use team. So our purpose was to go out where fires were declared, no risk to values at risk. Because think about it, fire is a hazard, just like a power saw or a ladder or a vehicle. Fire is a hazard, and the hazard is a risk only to a value at risk that is vulnerable and will have negative consequences interacting with that hazard. That's the definition of risk. So if in those days on the fire use team, if a fire had started by lightning or or whatever cause in an area where there was low risk to any value at risk, we were dispatched to go to the fire and essentially monitor it, not put it out, but monitor it and maybe corral it even, or maybe channel it in certain ways. But we were a short team and that was our responsibility until it reached a trigger point, a trigger point where that fire then has a potential risk to a value at risk. Then we expanded resources or another team was called in to actually put it out. But yes, I mean, the answer to that question, Dan, is yes. There are still appropriate, it's just like prescribed burning. There are appropriate situations and times and conditions where even a wildland fire can be managed for for a resource benefit or for for a, a ecosystem benefit. Yes. Cool. All right. Well, I'm interested to find out what those 
benefits are from a fire to the land. But before we do that, let's take a moment out for a word from my affiliate, Cheese and Passion. Superb cheese, the kind you remember for years, is the cheese De Bruno Brothers sells. The world has hundreds, maybe thousands of kinds of cheese, and De Bruno Brothers works hard to get them all. 900 different kinds of cheese in one year by one account. I want you to visit culinarylibertarian.com slash cheese to see the massive selection of cheese at De Bruno Brothers. Brothers Danny and Joe started De Bruno Brothers House of Cheese in 1939, and the store is still going. Check the selection of hard grating cheeses and soft sandwich cheeses and rich double cream snacking cheeses. Well, all of them are snacks, really. The wall of cheese will get your culinary inspiration working. If you are in the Philly area, use the website to schedule a pickup. If you are somewhere not close, like Oregon, place an order. Join the monthly club. Dubruno grandson Emilia Minucci designs each month's selection. The House of Cheese has grown to be so much more, but cheese is still the heart and soul of Dubruno Brothers. Join one of those cheese clubs or just pick and choose. Check the website for details about free shipping. CulinaryLibertarian.com slash cheese for the cheeses you never knew you have to have. CulinaryLibertarian.com slash cheese to get some Philly brotherly love mailed to you. Now, let's get back to the show. All right, so fire can be a benefit to the land. So tell us how, because I think that that may not be at all obvious. So fire... These ecosystems, if you look at the state of Oregon and you start at the Pacific Ocean on the west and you head east, say, uh, pick a place, Florence. So you're in Florence on the coast and you want to take a beeline east to the state of Idaho. Uh, what you'll do essentially is hit the coast range. You go up over the coast range, which is a shorter mountain range. And then you get into the valley area and then you climb up over the Cascades and then you go down the other side and you get into central Oregon and then you keep going east until ultimately you come to French Glen and the Steens Mountain um, and then ultimately Idaho. Well, along that gradient, if you will, along that transect, you have a weather system that really interacts with that, all of that topographic dissection and difference. So you have the maritime generally. I know you have all different types of, of exceptions, but generally you have a maritime air mass that's moist, that's uh, moderate, and it heads, it makes its trip eastward along that transect. It, it goes up over the coast range. It drops more rain on the west side of the coast range, a little bit of a rain shadow in the valleys, less rain there and then it goes up the cascades and it drops more of its rain as it climbs up the elevation and then on the other side it's a rain shadow 
and you get really dry because it's dropped all of it on the west side. You follow that system on the east side, and then then you head east, and it's really dry. You can go from over uh, 60, 80 inches of rain a year on the on the far west side to you know 10 inches of rain a year on the east side, all because of the climatic influence that's um, interacting with the topographic difference. Well, over the eons of that happening, plants, vegetation, all plant species have genetically modified the makeup and adapted and adjusted to occupy different differences along that gradient. So you have plants, trees, grass, shrubs, forbs, that occupy certain areas, but not other areas because they're not adapted to do that because they put all of the genetic adaptation and, and mutation in succeeding in a certain niche on that gradient. So in other words, ponderosa pine does best at drier climate, lower elevation, um, under certain solar heat and precipitation and elevation uh, d combination. It, it does the best there, but you can try planting it at 10,000 feet and it will die because it's not adapted to that. You can take subalpin fir at 10,000 feet and uh, you can put it in Eastern Oregon on the Malheur and it will die because it doesn't get enough moisture. And on and on and on every plant we have. Um, wildlife then has adapted to those species as habitat and what, what happened also over the eons is that lightning occurred or human disturbance influence occurred for a long enough period of time in the form of fire that the intensity and frequency of the fires interacting with weather and topography in the same combinations as plants affected the plants. So the plants themselves, the habitat, the communities, the, even the physiological makeup genetically adapted not only to the topographic and climatic differences, but also to disturbance. That's why ponderosa pine, you'll find, grows best at two to 3,000 feet in elevation with about 15 inches of rain a year and uh, has thick bark to withstand frequent low-intensity fires and and seed sprouts this way. Well, I can say that for every plant in the state. The only problem is you take disturbance away it, for some species is almost like planting that ponderosa pine at 10,000 feet. It doesn't adapt to that very well that disturbance is fire. So if, if I spent 100 years taking that disturbance out of the system with fire suppression, the plants that have adapted and adjusted to that fire intensity and frequency over the eons just don't do very well. In fact, some plants will disappear from the system altogether without that disturbance. That biomass without that disturbance builds up unnaturally high 
And that causes problems, that causes stress, and it causes competition, and it causes plants that were adapted to disturbance over eons in addition to weather and topography just don't do very well. And some die, some, and then when fire does occur, that 2% that gets away, you have conditions of intensity and severity of fire that will cause mortality, more mortality within those plants. Or you have um, more drought, drier, warmer temperatures, and those plants that have adapted to over the eons to a range of like temperature and precipitation and solar radiation, you change that with climatic changes and that also stresses the plants out. So you change climate that they have adapted to, the plants have adapted to, you change the intensity and frequency of disturbance the plants have adapted to, you've got overall negative consequences from that vulnerable population that that causes uh, negative changes. So you put it back together, fire can indeed benefit the ecosystems, especially the ecosystems that over eons have adjusted and adapted to that level of disturbance. So it seems to most of us to be a counterintuitive thought that fire well, one, it's hard to recognize it's natural, but it is, but that it has a benefit. It just, it seems. Well, it, and the pro yes, odd. the problem is I used to have a t-shirt that had a poster from the, from the thirties and forties that said death rides the forest, you know, and, and it was a, a skeleton on fire on a death horse going through a charred forest. I mean, we've been taught, well, we're always taught, don't touch fire. We're always taught well, fire will hurt Not us. bad advice. Don't touch fire. No, but, <laughs> but fear of fire, Dan, honestly, doesn't help anything. To be cautious and respectful of fire does. But fear of fire causes irrational behavior and fire can benefit us. And so we cook with fire. We have campfires. Fires saved my life can, many times. Can, can you give just one quick example of that? Because that's the second time you said it. And now I'm really intrigued. Well, I, I do winter sports. So, I mean, winter recreation a lot. Over the years, I, you know, I backcountry ski, I snowshoe, I backcountry snow camp. And up in North Idaho and Montana, um, where I lived, uh, you can get 30 below very easily on most winter days and nights. And um, six, 12 feet of snow where you ski. Well, there have been many, many times that I've been out lost or stranded, and I would have died if it wasn't for the ability to build a fire and keep warm. And that's, that's just one example. And I've been, you know, kayaking in the past and uh, hypothermic and uh, a fire saved my life. Well, and that makes sense when you explain it that way. I was, 
I, and I suspect the listeners will also imagine this forest on fire and trying to imagine how in the world is it possible that that saved his life. But <laughs> your example makes well, perfect actually, sense. Well, actually, conversely, on wildland fires, Dan, fire has saved my life there too in that there have been conditions on fires that, that I was working on. If we didn't backburn, if we didn't use fire to fight fire, I wouldn't be here today either. So there have been many times when we've saved towns, when we've put the fire out on time uh, without negative impact and saved my life and lives of crew members by using fire to fight fire, burning fire back into the fire before it got to us. We've saved a rancher's life and his fifth generation home in Southeast Montana in 2000 by doing exactly that. He wouldn't leave his home. He wouldn't evacuate, send his family out. Fire was coming down, driven by 40, 50 mile per hour winds and 200 foot flame lengths and coming right for this ranch house. And I was ready to take our engine crew and leave and, and let the guy die. But then at two o'clock in the morning, I was fiddling with my lighter, trying to decide when to leave. And as this fire was just coming down the hill right towards this ranch house, the lighter dropped, ignited this stubble field of 70 acres that was right in front of his house, right in the way of the fire. And it was it burned immediately three to six foot flame lengths. And that gave us the idea to strip it out. So while this fire was coming down, we were burning into the wind, 70 acres, just in time to stop that fire, save the ranch house, save the rancher, saved our lives. And uh, it, it was a happy ending as the sun was coming up over the mountain. Well, no, that is a lucky mistake. It worked. Well, yes. And, um, uh, safety is always first, and I, I wouldn't have even thought about, uh, you know, putting our people in front of that fire, but it was a tactic that that worked safely for everybody and, and therefore made the risk uh, worthwhile. So I wanted to come back to forest health. Uh, you know, fire, Native peoples have been dealing with fire, well, probably forever. So including prescribed burns, what else can be done to manage forests and make and or keep them healthy? And then I want you to talk about what a healthy forest looks like. So there are a lot of ways to keep a forest healthy. Um, my experience is one of the, the basic fundamental ways to keep a forest healthy. Well, there are several things. One is to never try not to exceed the productive capability and capacity of the soils underneath those trees to sustain the populations of those trees. In other words, whether it's east side, west side, it's all different, again, depending on soil type and precipitation and all the other factors. But on the west side, it, uh, soils are more productive because you have more precip and, and everything else. Um, the trick is if, if 
uh, like I'm in a house right now, a 1200 square foot house. Right now, uh, I'm pretty comfortable because I have space. I have space to breathe. I have space to walk around. If I put 10,000 people in this house, I would be really stressed out and uh, I would probably leave the system. Same thing with the productive capability of forests is that it doesn't honestly matter if it's uneven age, if you have different age classes or size classes or species, or I mean, actually the diversity is good, beneficial, but the, the, the concept is, the important concept is if you exceed the carrying capacity and you can still have dead and dying for wildlife habitat, you can still have dead snag, you can have all of the, the components that benefit all of the affiliated ecosystem resources. But if you exceed the carrying capacity of, of that forested ecosystem, then you will have stress. Have stress, you're open to mortality. Have mortality, you're open to a more severe fire event if fire should occur. So that's one way to keep a forest healthy. You know, it depends on your goals and objectives, and those are all different, and that's okay. But if if you really want to keep a forest healthy, you look at the native composition of the plants that have adapted to that site. So again, you don't want to put an east side ponderosa pine on a west side dug fir stand. Uh, it it won't do well, and it'll probably stress and die out. So to keep a forest healthy, you need to never, you need to try not to exceed the carrying capacity or productive capability of that forest, one, and two, manage for the native biodiversity, if you will, or diversity of, of, of all the plants um, uh, that have adapted there through time and uh, manage for components like mycorrhiza, soil health uh, and riparian health, uh, watershed health, and keep the, the components intact. And those are all different for different forest types, but keep all of those intact and you'll have a much healthier forest. And you can still do that. And again, goals and objectives are different depending on the ownership and the management of that land. And that's okay. But if somebody asks me, can I manage for all of these things as a healthy forest and reduce risk? Yes, you can. You can reduce fuel loading by adhering to the productive capability of that forest. So whether you do that by mechanical disturbance or prescribed burn disturbance or whatever means you, you want, and then they'll say, well, can I manage for all of that healthy forest and reduce risk and produce a commodity that I can make money on, well, yeah, you can, you can. And maintain wildlife habitat and maintain native diversity and maintain watershed health, you can. It's not whether you can or can't, it's how you do it, when you do it, and, and how you manage it through time that enables it to 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 be realized 
Interesting. And and we're, we're back to not the homeowner who has five acres of forest, but we're back to the big tracts of land, which sound like they might be being mismanaged, and that's more politics, so we're going to skirt that a little teeny bit. Uh, in the last few years, certainly on the West Coast, we've heard the chorus of the concerned insist the fires are caused only by global warming. Now, cause may be the wrong word. Uh, made lesser might be better, uh, or not made less may be better choice. The National Interagency Fire Center has fire and acreage burned history going back to 1926. By comparison, 2020 and 2019 are not even close to the worst being a 52 million acre burn in 1930. So the two questions seem to be, can any one thing be said to be the cause of fires other than the source? And why so much less acreage burnt now than, say, back in the 30s? So, Dan, like I said, my experience on the fire line, well, I've worked with fire models from 73 to 78. But I started working on the fire line from 1978, and I worked every fire season uh, till 2012. During that relatively brief time, I personally witnessed an increase in temperature over the years, which is validated by 140 years of climate readings or temperature readings in the U.S. beginning from the 1880s to present. If you look at the temperature reading every year from 1880 to 2020, uh, you can see a trend upward where the last six or seven years are the hottest on that 140 year record. So yes, temperatures have increased since I started in the seventies. And I noticed that I saw that since I started in the seventies, I personally observed fires starting earlier because it was hotter and drier earlier and fires burning later in the year because it was hotter and drier later in the year. I personally observed fire seasons having more red flag days in a given year. And that means temperatures of greater than 80 degrees, winds greater than 20 miles per hour and humidities less than 20%. That happens more often during the year than it did when I started. I personally observed fires burning hotter and being harder to manage and harder to control. I personally observed in that time period more people moving out to what was formerly remote areas in concentrations and congregations that were more than ever before. In that time period, I've also personally observed being a structure firefighter for a number of years, houses burning hotter and faster because of the switch from organic materials to synthetic materials inside these homes and construction materials and all that stuff. So that combination 
that web of change, in addition to suppressing fires for over 100 years, have created a, a, an integrated, concentrated situation for calamity that is makes fires now they may be fewer of them altogether but they're bigger and hotter and harder to manage and more risk in the way of these fires than ever before one of the things that seems to be the case is the more we know the more complicated things seem to get it's complicated but you know it's predictable it's complicated but the science gives us the trends just like these homes, Dan, you know, the homes in Paradise, the homes in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, the homes in Malibu, in Santa Rosa, and now out of Ashland for the first time in Oregon, these concentrations of homes are burning like running crown fires do in forests. From what I've seen is I've been through running crown fires in a forest environment where the winds and temperature and humidity are such that fires just blast through forests, consuming thousands of acres every hour. And they just go uninterrupted day and night, burning tens of thousands of acres. Um, I've been in that situation. Well, I'm seeing that occur on subdivisions now. And we don't know why. We don't know the science behind that. What and we need it. What does a running? Can you? I don't know how. Is there a way to verbally paint a picture of what a running running crown fire looks like? Sure. So, in two thousand eight, I was on a fire in Augusta, Montana, and it was a hundred and twenty acre. It was on a hilltop in the backwoods. It was on a hilltop. Lightning strike. It had. Um, you know, weather conditions were favorable, so it just kind of crept downhill. We had one hot shot crew on duty uh, in charge of the, you know, I was in charge of the fire. We had one hot shot crew managing the fire. They were putting a line around it, this 120 acres of black. And the flame lengths were about a, a foot and a half tall. And we were going, uh, we kind of broke it off the night before, and we had maybe 60, 100 feet left to tie in the line and put the fire out. So foot and a half, nobody was in a hurry. It was early morning, humidity was high, temperatures were low, there was no wind to speak of, and, and the fire was just kind of moving along. About 10.30 that morning, within half an hour, the wind kicked up to about 40, 50 miles per hour, temperature rose 20 degrees, humidity dropped to the teens. That fire went from a foot and a half flame length in half an hour to 200, 300 foot flame lengths, driven 40 to 50 miles per hour across that forested landscape. We barely escaped by jumping into the black of that 128, what was a 120 acre fire. We're marooned on that hilltop for four or five days while that fire burned day and night at that speed, at that intensity, at that power, consuming 70,000 acres while we sat on that hilltop. 
because it was a running crown fire. It was burning so hot, so fast. It burned right through the crowns and didn't stop until the weather changed. So I'm just want to see if I get this. So is there a correlation to the heat of the fire and the length of the flame? Yes, the rate of spread, the the energy release component, the amount of heat put off by the consumption of of the right of the the amount of fuel driven by oxygen or wind is correlating to the rate of can correlate to the rate of spread and the flame length. So it it depends on again wind te- climate topography and fuel that determine correlate directly to the rate of spread the energy release component the flame length and how fast how hot that fire will spread and where it burns within those trees and so you call it a crown fire and i'm imagining just maybe i'm my words are wrong i'm just imagining like the canopy is the part that burns but the the trees down to the ground remain intact or is just everything turned to ash um, usually there, I've seen crown fires where the crown, the ground was a light intensity burn, but blackened tree canopy. I've seen that, but generally if a fire gets burning that hot, that fast, it's usually an entirely blackened landscape. Um, but imagine that situation in a subdivision driven by 90 mile per hour winds with that heat, that dryness, instead of trees, what we're seeing now are homes burning that hot, that fast. That's kind of terrifying. Well, it's not meant to be. It's meant to be understood because that's what's happening. So you need to step back. We need the body of science. We need the research to tell us why and how and when and where. So just like those 40 vegetation fuel models, all that work that was done in the 70s was done specifically for that reason. Well, if we understand how fire behaves in those fuel types, we'll know how to prevent it, mitigate it, or manage it. Well, we need the same thing now with structures. We need to look at the built environment, if you will, And we need to do the same thing with that. We need to understand the science behind. See, that's why, Dan, we can't be afraid. We need to be knowledgeable. And the knowledge we gain from that will go into the management of it or the prevention of it. If we don't learn from it, we're doomed to repeat it. Well, I agree with that. I'm just, you know, I'm, I guess I'm envisioning being one of the homeowners and watching this thing just go poof. <laughs> it's terrible. Well, that's, it's that's terrible. But that's what, what my point was. So, I mean, this isn't really part of what I want to ask you, but I'm just curious. Would one of those, I don't, I don't want to, I'm trying to speak technically and I can't. Would one of the ways to manage those subdivisions burning less or not at all include building homes further apart? Sure. I mean, how would we manage 
how would we mitigate a running crown fire in a forest? That's the only life. thing we have is manipulating the fuels, right? So we would space trees out further. And, and again, you'll under the perfect storm of conditions, literally, there's almost nothing you can do. I mean, if it's, if it's hot enough and dry enough and the wind is high enough, um, honestly, there's not much that could have been done. But under normal conditions, one way to pre-plan or, or mitigate the risk of a forest to fire is to prepare it, is to reduce fuels. And to manage for forest health, reduce fuels, you can still have the forest, of course, and wildlife habitat and all that other stuff, but you reduce fuels, you maybe introduce fire, and you get it to a state where it can withstand or be resilient to most fires. Well, why can't we do the same thing to a subdivision? Why can't we manage for the density and the fuel breaks and composition and you know the the best way to reduce fire risk in your home along with fire extinguishers and smoke alarms and watch out your kitchen and all that other stuff clean your flu and all that other stuff is to honestly retrofit your house with a sprinkler system you know if houses are burning 10 times hotter and eight times faster now than they did 20 or 30 years ago the way to offset that or mitigate that is by putting a sprinkler system in. Not everyone can do that, but that's one way to do it. So there are ways to mitigate risk. We just need to understand the science behind the hazard before we can know how to deal with it to mitigate the risk to values. Let's take a moment out for a word from Jake about his Tasting Anarchy podcast. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. All right, so let's... Put aside for a moment that the general government owns 53% or so of Oregon. In your opinion, who is best suited to attend to the fairs of Oregon or Washington or California in managing the forests? And uh, the, the, the choices would be the federal government or state or private entities. You know, that Dan, that depends. It really depends. I don't think, um, you know, I've seen... Sure. With my background, it depends on what the goals and objectives are. But there are so many benefits to having public land um, in this country, in this state. You know, there's so many benefits to that. I honestly can't answer that question because I feel that a good mix of public, private, state, federal is is what is the most beneficial. And I feel that with fostering good science 
in making these politically related decisions. I, I think it would be a detriment to have it all in private hands personally and professionally. And I think it would be probably be a, well, you couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't have hundred percent in public land ownership, but I think the, I think the balance we have now is good. And I think there are improvements. Sure. There are improvements in the way private land managers manage land. Uh, there are improvements in the way public land managers manage the land needed. Uh, sure. I mean, but I think switching ownership sets us up for more detriment than benefit in the future. Okay. Uh, I'm going to shift gears here. I'm going to move into some short answer questions that have nothing to do with fire. Of the five flavors, bitter, salty, sweet, sour, or umami, which one do you prefer? Bitter. What's your favorite food? Pasta. What's your least favorite food? Lima beans. What sound do you love? Inspirational music. What sound do you hate? Disconcordant jazz. What's your favorite food indulgence? A balanced meal with vegetables, meat, pasta, that's prepared very well. That's a rarity to me. I don't, living alone, I don't, I hardly ever eat that way, but it's, it's an indulgence when I can. That sounds nice. <laughs> Is there a book you know of or books you know about that people can read to learn more either about wildfires, forest management, or something that's similar to what we've been talking about? I would recommend, we have an extension fire program uh, at Oregon State, and our program manager is Carrie Berger, and she's doing a top-notch job. We're, we're building fire resources uh, before the fire, during the fire, and after the fire for landowners, public managers, for all. Um, we have a web page under Oregon State University uh, Extension Fire Program, and uh, I can send a link later. But if that's, it's growing to be a really neat one-stop shop for fire education, outreach, and planning, and uh, post-fire activity. So I would recommend strongly that folks. Uh, Tune into that web page. Uh, I think I found it. Is that the one that's got uh, the yellow documents, like two or three or four pages? Yes. Yeah, that's a, a fantastic resource. Uh, it's a good one. It's improving all the time. Carrie is doing a great job. And the other one I would recommend is we have a partnership in Klamath and Lake County that is actually doing cross-boundary public-private landscape management taking into account fire as a natural role in the system and they're doing a terrific job at partnering cross-boundary public-private to manage these lands for health and safety and that that website is really simple it's klfhp.org and it's the Klamath Lake Forest Health Partnership. 
And their web page is a really neat source of information and, and resources for uh, people looking to manage uh, landscapes, well, homes and landscapes. And, and I didn't, I don't think I've come across that page and that's actually a really good thing to have because uh, I haven't, <laughs> people have been asking me, are you guys okay out there? I said, well, you know, we're fine. It's smoky, but you know, the, the neighborhood's fine. But I started thinking, did the people who built this house take these things into consideration? And I, hard for me to know by looking because I don't know what you know about looking at a forest. I, you know, I look at a forest, I see green and say, Hey, look, it's fantastic. Uh, you look at a forest and you probably think it doesn't different thing. So, um, being informed about landscape would be a good thing for your house. Oh, it always starts with an assessment. It always starts with an assessment, hopefully a map, maybe an inventory. But Dan, the first step is is the assessment of what you have, a knowledge of the hazard, and know what type, what risk you're under to that hazard, and you can go from there. Now, for people who live in, say, Nebraska or Maine, would the Klamath Lake website have some use to them, at least in terms of thinking about how, and maybe you don't know the answer, but could, could other people use this information? Yes, because the process the Klamath Lake Forest Health Partnership used is a process that starts with a partnership. And sure, the details will change just like across that gradient, but the concept should apply. You start with a partner, gather public, private, work together, utilize the commonalities between everybody, which, you know, we ought to be doing everywhere else, but just to deal with the, to deal with the hazard and the risk and the values, build a partnership, then go to the assessment, make the maps, do the inventory, make the agreements, get the, get the, get the money, the grant money lined up and implement projects. What I just said could apply anywhere, just in different ways. Very good. Well, and that's important. We want um, the fire risk in Northern Michigan is different than it is in Oregon. And by the way, I was in Florida in, in those fires. Oh. Uh, drove down 95 afterward and it was, it was, it was a mess. Yep, right in the middle of it for that month and a half. And uh, 95, it had burned over 95 uh, a couple of times while we were there. And we used, uh, we closed down 95, and that was our fire corridor uh, yeah, I was, after it burned. I lived in Tallahassee, and at that time, my mother lived in Fort Pierce. Yep, we had a camp in Perry, and we had a camp in Orlando. Um, and we... Uh, we saw it all the way through, but it was uh, th uh, those trees, the plant, the uh, 120, 150 foot tall trees burn like grass across that flat topography. And, and uh, it was, it was 106 degrees and, and 89% humidity when we were fighting that fire. And it, <laughs> it was, <laughs> that's, that's just a Florida summer day. That doesn't mean it. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was a neat experience. Eighty nine percent humidity. It was low that day, <laughs> and the surprise but, you know. was when that storm system came off the coast, 
and dumped eight inches of rain in a few hours, we thought, oh, we're going to, we're, we're done. Five hours later, the flames kicked up again and the flammable vegetation was burning just like it was before the storm. Yeah. I don't know much about fire, but I know Florida and Florida is a curious <laughs> place. <laughs> All right. Well, Dan, thank you so much for your time. We've actually kind of gone over uh, oh. what we said our budget was, oh. but if that's all right, um, I really appreciate you taking the time and, and giving me this information, which I think is really missing in the link posting narrative of misinformation from mass media. So I appreciate your efforts. Dan, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate your interest and for the opportunity to express, um, uh, thank you very much for that. My pleasure. Well, have a good afternoon. And you too. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, folks, that's going to do it. I'll have links on the show notes page to some of the articles discussed, as well as the link to the Oregon State Resources. There is a lot of good content there, and each is only a few pages long. Even though fire season is probably mostly over, being informed and ready is a good plan. If you like what I'm doing here, I would appreciate your support. Purchases through the links or donations from the support page are much appreciated. You can also support the show by sharing the episodes around on social media, liking the show on your favorite podcatcher, and rating and reviewing the show. All of those help share the show with more people. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.